need to know your customer in this world. What websites are they going to? How are you reaching them? What messaging are you doing? How are you telling them you, what your brand solves? Are you messaging to the right people? What are you solving for them? What are you making them feel good about? In order to survive long-term, you have to know the person who's buying and what they're getting. And if they're not getting value from you, you're in a short-term relationship. And we want long-term relationships. All right, you're listening to the Deal Closers podcast brought to you by WebsiteClosers.com, a show about how to build your e-commerce business to be profitable, scalable, and one day even sellable. I'm Isaac Porter, and on the show today, we have Nick Weeksner, who is the CEO of Southcall. Southcall helps e-commerce companies evolve from the dreaded no man's land into the coveted sweet spot. At Website Closers, we've brokered the sale of businesses from anywhere between $100,000 in revenue to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. But from my experience, it's much easier to sell a company when it's on a strong upward growth trend. And if you're in the low seven figures and kind of stuck in that spot, that might be what Nick refers to as no man's land. But let's find out from him. And more importantly, let's find out what Southcall does to help. Nick, welcome to the Deal Closers podcast. Thanks for being on the show, man. Thanks, Isaac. Glad to be here. So I guess to start off with, can you just tell us about your journey personally and why you started Southcall? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I came to this sort of e-commerce business in uh, early 2010s uh, with an early company called D2C. They were what would now be called an aggregator, but back then that word didn't exist, raising a fund to buy a suite of Amazon businesses. In the process of doing that, got really in depth with a bunch of uh, e-commerce companies that we were looking to buy. In doing that, came across a company called Sellers Funding, which is now Sellers Fi, and invested in them and joined the board of uh, Sellers Funding, Sellers Fi. And um, after being on the board for uh, three years, uh, Ricardo Perro and um, Fabio uh, asked me to come aboard operationally. So I came aboard as head of sales. And then after a year of that, transitioned to CFO because we were raising uh, a large new debt fund and um, a Series A and expanded the business, you know, to lend out, uh, you know, $350 million in a year. Uh, it was a very different business than when we started. And they had a loan book of 30 companies for $100,000, right, which is a very big growth during that period. When I was there, I realized that Sellers Fi does an amazing job for companies that are looking to grow. If you want working capital to assist in buying stuff from, you know, China and then paying for it when it comes back, it's a great way to grow a business and they do a great job. But we were actually, I saw there was a hole in the market where we actually said, look, if someone could get longer term capital and a deeper relationship in a more meaningful way, you could really scale them up. And so decided that we had uh, two companies we worked a lot with, Ascala and GW Partners. And GW Partners is a boutique investment bank. Ascala is a process management consultancy. And we saw that there's like this real efficiency if we all came together. And so we formed a joint venture and that's Southcall. Uh, so I left Sellers Fi to run and start Southcall. And, you know, I always start with the name Southcall actually really tells you a lot about what we're about. Southcall is the final face of Everest. 
It's a bit technical and you've already climbed all the way up Everest and this is the last ascent to get up to the very top of the world. And that's how we view ourselves. We are the people that are going to try to help you. You've already built a business, you know, that's already doing amazing things, already profitable, already growing, doing a lot, but you want to get that huge exit. We want to you know, partner with those people to give them resources, both in capital and intellectual and strategic and, you know, advisory, all of those sorts of things so that when they go to sell, we can efficiently get them to double or triple evaluation where they are today. Uh, we always look at, you know, an 18 to 24 month uh, roadmap. <clears throat> so that really sort of tells you what South Call is about. And all of us, the five founders, We've all been involved in, in e-commerce for, you know, anywhere from eight to 10 plus years, each of us individually, uh, a lot with the CPG, a lot with brand building, a lot with, you know, the functional D2C side, the Amazon side. You know, we've sort of, we've seen many life cycles of this and, and changes, and we enjoy partnering with amazing entrepreneurs and uh, these men and women are doing a great job and we just try to help them get to where they want to get to. So South Call is providing growth capital to accelerate the growth of these businesses 18 to 24 months before they sell. So operationally, logistically, and strategically, what kind of things specifically are you helping the businesses do? Here's, I'll give you an easy example. So we were just working on last week, just as a, a point of example. So we have a portfolio company that was, is in the fresh food business and is considering going to a 3PL. And so we actually went out in our operational team. So when Southfall gets involved, to us, capital is just one of like 20 things we provide. So yes, it matters and capital helps, but we have portfolio companies where the capital side of it was not the most important side. The strategic resources far outweigh. So for example, with this company, they wanted to transition from selling everything at their location, their original location, and everything being done out of there to having things processed at a 3PL so that they don't have to cut off marketing during the fourth quarter because they had ran into a problem where it was so desired they had to cut it down because they couldn't supply all that orders because... Yeah, I've seen that happen many times. Capacity, right? Yeah. It's just yeah. it's what it is. Yeah. So we went out and we met with six different distributors. We narrowed it down to three. We met with the company to look at what the different contracts were for these companies, what the benefits were for them. We met with the CEO and the COO, and we talked about what the positives or negatives for each one of these. So we were in the weeds as we make this strategic decision because when we make this transition to a 3PL and we were just doing it now and it's going live. It's so you can't only do it once. You can't get it wrong. And so we were there to provide all of these guardrails as we went through it to bring up the right people, ask the right questions, dig through and find what the differences were. And now that we're launching it, we actually are working with the company and doing all the test orders, making sure we're stress testing it. We're making sure they can handle the excuse, making sure the ordering system works. So like those are the things that you're not going to get just from if you just get capital, right? Capital is money. You use it to buy things. We're there to like say, this is what you should be doing. You know, in addition, we do like another company that we just started with. We do uh, process scripts. And what those are is each sprint will analyze an area. So for example, in this company, we looked at marketing. How could they do marketing better? So we looked at like what they do now. We mapped it out and said, here's who handles this. She does this. He does that. If you want to grow, here's the way you should look. Here's what you need. And humorously, on this one that I'm talking about, this specific one that we just did, there actually was, we went to the CEO and we said, you actually need to bring in a chief marketing officer and the person you have running marketing will be better on brand side. 
that she's just really good at building brand, but you need someone that's a, a CMO that has a different accountability and different sort of structure. And so we went to him and said, you know, do you think we want to be cautious that we didn't want to make an employee of theirs feel that we're bringing them down or not giving them room to grow or, you know, any of that. And then it actually turned out that we sat down with her and she was excited because she wanted a mentor. She said, look, I love the brand side. I'd love to have somebody come in who has, you know, 15 to 20 years experience and learn what he or she knows about marketing to help me grow and develop. And I want to focus on brand. And right now I'm doing a lot of stuff that isn't that. And so I love the idea that you're going to build an organization where I get to do what I want to do as opposed to these other jobs that she was doing because she had to, right? Because like everyone works in these companies, right? You grab a shovel and you dig. And so it's one where we were actually able to make the employee very happy. Obviously, we were cautious and we would never sort of like jump in and just like say this. But, you know, in floating it up, we're like, hey, let's talk. And, and it turns out that it made everybody happier. So those are the type of things that we would do operationally as we get into a company. We're big believers in we document everything. So when we go to sell a company, we literally hand over accountability charts, process maps, financials. And honestly, a strategic buyer, they deeply value the fact that they could take this book and basically start running the company that day. That's cool. No sort of like, what is the SDE or EBITDA? What is, you know, how do you put an order, you know, through? What happens when it goes wrong? And those sorts of things. Got it. So from an org structure perspective, I guess, are you in the equity then? Are you taking an ownership stake in these businesses that you're incubating? How does that work? Great question. So without getting too specific from sort of a top level, what we do is we go to the owner and we say, what do you think you're worth today? Okay, let's say, let's just take an example. You're doing 10 million. You've got, you know, 800,000 in EBITDA or SD. And, you know, you think you're worth five times that. So that'd be 4 million. Okay. We go, okay, cool. You're worth 4 million. We're going to inject in some venture debt. So that's that capital. We're going to bring in all these resources that we are applying to your company. And that's our operations team meets with your operations team at least once a week. One of the founders sits on your board. They meet with you once a week and anyone else for strategic. And in addition, we do all of these other things that we like list out. We think are paramount to like having a successful exit two years later. So we come in and it's like, this laundry list of stuff. We then say, okay, when we go to sell, we get a piece of the excess above 4 million because you're saying you're worth 4 million today. We're going to increase that value. We want to increase that pie, increase it a hundred times, but let's talk realistically. We want to increase it four or five times. Yep. We're getting a slice, a piece of that value creation. So we're taking the risk right alongside you saying, if we don't create value, we're not going to get. It. Yeah, I get it. That makes sense. Yeah. You're, you're participating in the upside that you helped to create. That's right. And how big is that piece in general? 20 to 30%. It's going to depend on the size of the company. It, it's a lot of variables that go into what it is. That's pretty cool, man. I like that. That seems like a good deal. It sounds to me like a kind of a PE management model without having to sell the whole company to get it. That's right. That's the way we would look at it. And, and it's a way that the, the capital that comes in does come in as debt because it's secured against it. So, so it's like it balances out all of the, because a lot of these companies, it'd be very hard for them to find equity. That there, there's not a lot of equity investors that want to invest in this size of company, right? Because minority stake. Especially not minority investors. They're, they're, right. they're, you know, there's a lot of majority deals that get done, but, but very few minority deals in the, exactly. in the kind of the lower middle market space, right? That's right. Because it, it, it's like, look, I either want to buy the whole thing or a majority, so I run it. 
Yeah. But like coming in where, cause we also understand we seed all management decisions to management. They run the business. We're not telling them how to make widgets. We come to the table with ideas and do that. And like our screening process, if you ever go through it is heavily on like, do you like working with us? And we really value the people we work with. You know, we want them to be people that care about things outside of their business. Like, have a passion. You know, for me, it's, it's public education. It's a huge passion of mine. I spent a lot of time on it. We look for people that have like those varied interests and, and things that we want to work with because when we get involved with a company, it's a marriage and, you know, we need to sell the company and do well. And, you know, we want to make sure we're, we're partnered with people that we, um, you know, value and respect and that they value and respect us. And it leads to a very productive portfolio that all of our portfolio companies are. I think even more than access to capital, one of the biggest impediments that I see from my clients in growing, scaling, and kind of breaking through that seven to eight figure barrier and above is is management expertise. It's like, how do they build out the right team? How do they get the right... Hiring the right people is super expensive once you get to that level because to get good people, they're very expensive. And then if you hire the wrong person, it's very costly. Yes. And it can set you back. Not not only just the money, right? Like I always tell entrepreneurs, time is an incredibly valuable resource where if you blow six months trying to train somebody up, working with them to try to get them to do a better job. I have very few entrepreneurs who aren't so passionate about their business that they think they could get someone who's not working. They'll get them to work, you know, and they'll put all this energy and time into trying to get this employee to work, which is great because like they want... They want everyone to succeed. But the problem is if your business has those things, that entrepreneur then isn't spending the time developing the new product or launching the new product or, you know, accessing another channel to, to, to sell on. So like all of those things they were doing in lieu of that are what you're losing value. And I'm like, yeah, you got to bring on human capital and human resources. That's very important. Got it. That's, that's helpful. So what, you know, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen e-commerce entrepreneurs make? And I'd kind of bucket this maybe into two categories of, because I've got a perspective on this as well from what I see in, in my side of the deal flow, but for people who decide to work with you and then and maybe folks who don't, what are mistakes that are made and how do they overcome that or not? Yeah. All right. Well, I'll hit and, and anyone who's heard me before, like, look, as a former CFO, like obviously I care deeply about the financial. I worked as an investment banker. You know, I live and breathe inside of financial modeling. And one of the things I always say is like, the real world's not Excel spreadsheet. Like, sure, I can add and do multiply previous month by 1.1, growing it at 10%, and stream that across 18 months, and you have incredible growth. That's not how the real world works. You've got to actually produce more, sell more, have customers who want to buy more. It's a lot more complicated than that. But the one part I do put a deep value in is there are many entrepreneurs, I'm talking about good ones, so I'm not talking about, look, we could all, we've all seen people out in this field who, who maybe aren't that good. But I'm talking about people who really are running a good business. They don't necessarily understand at the deepest level what the profitability of each of their SKUs are to produce the value of what they produce. They haven't gotten down to the fully loaded cost of producing this widget, putting it in the customer's hand, and how much of that value then comes back to them and how they spread their operating costs over SKUs. We're not just talking about the cost of buying it in China, shipping it over. Most people know that at least, or have an idea about it. Yeah. 
But there's more than that. There's if you have five employees, how are you spreading their wages over your SKUs? Yeah, you're talking about attribution of, of overhead expense to the SKU level. That's right. And, and then the reason you do that is you then need to understand these 10 SKUs are money losers, but we need them because they get people in the door. So we're okay because they're loss leaders, right? Like we could all think of all the stories we know about you know, what people do with losses, right? But like, fine. Maybe they're like to make your, your, your brand have enough value of SKUs that you can cover the Amazon page. And so you need to have you know, enough offerings. But you need to understand your profitable ones. And then how can you ramp up sales of the ones that are most marginally beneficial for you? And how can you produce more that produce more marginal value? Right? Those should always be the thoughts of a, a, an entrepreneur of like, that's what they're doing. And they need to have it that intimate to like, I, I ran a retail chain and it was a photography studio. And it was for pictures of, you know, babies and then also like high school seniors and families, right? And we were very high end. And I used to walk with my CFO and I was a CEO and we'd walk in the mall and we literally could see, we mostly had women were our buyers and we could see the mothers and we'd be like, that person would spend 500, that would spend 900, that would spend 1200 because we could just see what purse they had, what clothes they were, what stores they're going into. That like, you need to know your customer in this world, what websites are they going to? How are you reaching them? What messaging are you doing? How are you telling them you, what your brand solves? Are you messaging to the right people? What are you solving for them? What are you making them feel good about? What are you doing for the person who is your who is buying your good that satisfies them? Because if you don't know that, I would say to you, you might be able to be making money now, but long-term, I don't believe it. Because in order to survive long-term, you have to know the person who's buying and what they're getting. And if they're not getting value from you, you're in a short-term relationship. And we want long-term relationships. We want companies where we have a crafting company and you just see the number of repeat customers because these parents value that they're doing this craft for juvenile girls. They value it and they want really good, high-quality ones. And we provide really good, high-quality ones. And like, we wouldn't let bad ones out there. Like, but that's different. There's other companies that don't have that. They're just spewing out whatever they think will sell and then on to the next thing, right? We all see it. Sure. Yeah. And that's that's somewhat of the difference between a, a brand yes. and and a product, right? Yes, exactly. You can start a business and have a have a profitable product without actually having a brand. That's right. And there's a lot of them. A lot of those people that they look a lot of those out there. Yeah. You know, they go on Helium 10, they find out what's selling X million a month. How much can they get in there to get 1% of the, the flow? Can they get it cheap and can they sell it? That's fine. But to me, that's a very, it's a different business. We're in the business of like, I always use ones people know, you know, Nike, right? But like, obviously these aren't Nikes. I, I fully understand that. But in a smaller sense, they are Nikes because the people go, we value what they stand for. We see what this is. And it's a smaller community. Nike obviously reaches the whole world, but our brands reach the community of people that value them and they have high quality reviews and high quality sort of thought because they, they produce a very good product. You know, our entrepreneurs are passionate about what they produce. You know, it's, it's they don't want anything bad to go out and they feel terrible if, if any, you know, obviously, if any mistake happens, which always does in any business and they jump in and solve it. That's the other way you can solve, like see if a company's good. Whenever there's an issue, how do they deal with it? Like, again, going back to my portrait company, we really had great photographers. Every once in a while, we had a terrible photo shoot. And anytime I would see it, 
I'd have him come in and I'd give him $300 of free portraits because it happened so rarely. I could give him a huge, a huge payout because I was telling them this happens so rarely. I can have you come in here. Here's $300 of portraits. I'm sorry. We want, and then we would, those, sometimes those customers became our biggest advocates. They're just like, yeah, you know, here it is. And like, obviously every company has a different, you know, what your cost of marginal goods are and, and all of this stuff, which is a different, you have to sort of think about what it fit, fits in. But that passion of saying, we're proud of what we do. We stand behind it. And we're going to show you we stand behind it when it's hardest to do that. But moving back to your question, so I apologize, I got a little off, which is- No, that's okay. That's an interesting point because I think you know making a mistake in business can be an opportunity to create loyalty if you handle it correctly. Yes. Because you have the opportunity to interact with the customer more deeply. The problem becomes if you're if you're making the mistake all the time, you can't afford to fix it. That's, that's <laughs> like, like you're saying, if it's if it's a rare occurrence, then it actually becomes an opportunity to create somebody who's like who's loyal. Man, these guys really made this right, and I love the brand. That's exactly right. But if it's happening every third order, you're gonna really if it's happening every third order. You're just you're screwed. You gotta <laughs> rethink it. You know, um, it's that that adage, right? Like uh, you know, doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. You know, is the definition of insanity. But, you know, getting back to your question, which is like, what do they not do? Well? So I said, like, one of the things is like really understanding the marginal value of every skew, what its profitability is to your overhead. And that's hard to do. There's there's systems and infrastructure that you have to have in place to do that yes. correctly. Because you need to be able to attribute people's time on campaigns. And there's not a simple plug-in for that. You've got to have some resources and some know-how to get to that level, but then it can drive a lot of value once you do it. That's exactly right. And, and we have some systems that actually do make it a little bit easier. So it's one of these ones where people, sometimes they look at the whole mountain, not to use mountain analogies all the time, but they look at the whole mountain and they won't take the first step up. It's actually, it, it is something that takes a process, but like, for example, with attribution, you can do some simple things, just do percentages. Look at an employee and say about half their time is spent on new products. We split it over the You can do some things that are steps in the right direction that often do the old, you know, 80-20. 20% of the work and get 80% of the value. Like, sure, there's a lot of little things you can do, but the first, which is what I was going to circle to, is getting out of cash accounting. That like you just if you're running you gotta be out of control, right? You yeah. Gotta like, be the cash accounting is I see so many, so many companies on cash accounting and it's you know, I actually see deals go to market on cash basis statements. And then I, you know, you look at the balance sheet and they've grown a million dollars in inventory over the last year. And it's like, man, you just left a million dollars of cash flow on the table. And, you know, on a, on a four or five X multiple, that's real money. That's real money. And, and, and it goes both ways, right? Like you, you see it both ways. And it also doesn't necessarily accurately reflect how your business is doing because it can go again, cash accounting can go sort of both ways. Not that cash is important. Cash is king. But again, I then do do accrual accounting and you look at the cash flow statement. And that's how when you're in finance, you get both worlds. You don't ignore one. But I always say to entrepreneurs, it can be painful to move. And it's so boring. Like I'm sure people have seen me like I, I get it, but like it's worth it. And there are people who can do it. Like we know we have some very trusted fractional people that you can bring on. Agents, like, if you get the right one. They can take you, you and I could geek out in our spreadsheets for a whole day and figure it out. And mo you know, a lot of people don't want to deal with that. That's right. And it's totally reasonable to outsource it. And I say that to people like, don't worry. This isn't, you don't need to do the heavy lifting. We have people who can do it, but it needs to be done because it's going to defect your value. Like you say, when you guys list companies, they need to have books that are understandable that present the true value of them both ways because they don't want to leave money on the table. Yeah. And the way I always think about it when we go through a sale process is I want 
you know, the SD or adjusted EBITDA that we're representing to be consistent with the expectation of cash flow that the buyer should have going forward if the business maintains at a steady state. Meaning if the business stays what it is, the number we represent should be the cash flow that's available to the buyer on a forward-looking basis. And that's ultimately what they're paying for is their expectation of what that cash flow is going to be in the future. And then, of course, they want to grow that to add value. And that's, you know, that's what, what you guys are focused on. That's right. Around that growth concept, what's some low-hanging fruit that, you know, what are some things that our listeners can do over the next 90 days to six months to improve their business valuation or, or just their business in general? Like, what are the easy things that people can do on their own? So doing their own, number one, I go make sure you're thinking about all the different channels that you could be in. And what I mean by that is saying, if you're on Amazon, think about what it would be to be a D2C, to have that channel of sales. You know, think about maybe going wholesale, depending on what your product is and doing that. I will caution that you need to make sure you have capital resources and know-how because wholesaling is very, very different. And there's big traps in there that, that can boomerang back on you. So, so don't. Man, I've got, I, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story on that where I've seen it go wrong is, is we had a client who was doing great. They went into wholesale, got in store with Walmart yep. and, you know, all of a sudden their AR explodes, right? Receivables explode. Walmart, you know, they're out 90 to 120 days from Walmart and they did not anticipate the fact that they had to then cover that cost of all their Walmart products that they sold for, you know, three to four months. And it almost put them out of business. We were able to get some financing in place and they got over that hump. And then once the cash flow cycle adjusted and they caught up, but it, but the business had to be capitalized entirely differently. Entirely different. And you have to be able to stop that. You also have to be able to build up the inventory. That if, I, if you're going to go onto a thousand shelves, you have to have a thousand shelves of all of those SKUs. And then the other thing was they, they, they had sent inventory to Walmart and then they didn't have enough inventory. They were out of inventory on, on their, the Shopify site, which was where their highest margins were, you know, because the, the wholesale margins are lower. It's much higher, bigger order values, but that can really get sticky quick if you're not doing that with somebody who's who's kind of been there before. Right? Been there before. And then let alone if they push product back to you when, when it doesn't sell through fast enough. And then all of a sudden you've got, hey, come pick up, you know, six truckloads of whatever your skew is. Like, wait a second. I didn't want to do that. And then, you know, some wholesalers make you buy out whatever shelves you're buying. So like, they're like, look, you want to have, you know, two feet of, sh- of shelf space? Fine. You've got to buy out this, you know, $50,000 of SKU, you know, to get that, clear that shelf off for us. Yeah. You know, Pet- do Petco it. does that. Yeah. I think. Pet- yeah. Petco is like real hard to work with that way. Yeah. AutoZone does it. The auto companies do it too. All those stores that you have to buy your shelf space. And so anyway, there are all these things. So that one I always put with the caveat, like make sure you partner with someone who's done it before, bring in resources before you. But again, it's a sales channel. And like you said, lower margin, but bigger sale and simpler. And, you know, I'll throw it back there is when you get a customer like Walmart or Costco or Target or any of them, you know, Home Depot, whatever, there are PO financers. And so like, you know, whether it's Sellers Fire or any of another dozen that you can go to, you can finance that. So like if you have that problem where you have that cash flow difference, when you have a PO from a top rated company, you can actually sell that PO to the PO company and pay, you know, 8% interest. So you know, not nothing, but but better than yeah. You can factor it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And because they know they'll collect it, and they're willing to have, get the interest rate because they know Costco will pay or, or Walmart will pay. Those are quality receivables. It's just yes. a timing difference. Exactly. The the other thing that this brings up in my mind is another reason why the skew level skew level profitability becomes so important because if you're wholesaling a product 
especially if you're just wholesaling one SKU, a lot of your overhead costs for that product may go away. So your margins actually might be somewhat better than your, I mean, your sale price will be lower, but you're going to, you're not going to have the same customer acquisition costs. You're not going to be doing the same amount of advertising for those products that are going to be sold on retail store shelves. Exactly. And that's exactly right. That's where you need to understand each channel. Cause that, like beyond just SKU, we actually make our portfolio companies, it's SKU by channel. So what is this skew in Shopify? What is the skew in Amazon? What is the skew? That's a great point. Yeah, because Amazon also is a different margin profile with PPC and then the, the Amazon fees. That's right. And I'm a big Amazon proponent. You know, it's, yep. I think it's still the lowest customer acquisition cost channel out there, but you have to understand the differences. So that's exactly. Yeah, I, that's really cool. I always say that to D2C because like I go to people, I go, you have people who are like this big D2C, like this is the best. I'm like, I love it. Love D2C. Amazon's the best. I hate D2C or vice versa. I look and go both. Look, they're just different. Where like Amazon is basically like renting, like I was a mall-based business, right? So I have a little bit of like analogy here, which is like we were in high traffic malls because we wanted these, you know, well-to-do. It's a great analogy. I love that. Yeah, and that's is. what Amazon totally. is. Digital mall. Yeah. It's a digital, and all of these eyeballs are going to be coming across your SKU. Now, when you're a D2C, okay, you're an outball. You're an outball. You've got to bring the customer to you. They're not coming there naturally. There's not... 50 other stores that are bringing them in so that they can see your storefront and move in. You're bringing them into you, which also can be successful. We had plenty of out for outflank businesses that we were able to attract to that customer and say, they came solely to come to us. That's D to C. So then your money, instead of paying on rent, you're paying it on this customer acquisition. But the answer is it net net is often within pennies of each other, you know, in terms of, but it's just where you're spending is different than the last part is saying like whether or not you own your customer, right? And that's the best part about D to C. Like, look, you own your customer, but you got to know what you're doing with that customer. Like, if you own that customer, don't do anything with it. What does it matter? But if you know what you're doing and you're able to then say to that customer, here's other ways I can expand my relationship with you because I understand you, then it's incredibly valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things I saw on your on your website was talking about EBITDA and SDE optimization. You know, what are, what are some of the things you guys look for in order to optimize free cash flow in the businesses you're working with? So we're huge. I mean, probably if it hasn't come through, I'm, I'm a big you know, advocate. I was, I, was, I was in investment banking during 2000 and 2001 and the internet craze. And, and we had all these companies and I've always been someone like, you've got to be making money. Now, a lot of those companies proved me dead wrong because they were not making money and then they made billions on valuation. Including Amazon during that time, right? Oh, yeah. Amazon, they were a book They didn't make money for a while. <laughs> they did not make money for a while. But when they started making money, it was enough to buy a 300-foot yacht, right? So like, it's a, <laughs> you can make a lot of money in a short time when you do it right. But that's a very hard, that's a high risk, right? So we like to look at, when we say EBITDA, uh, EBITDA or cash flow optimization, we look at everywhere where, where can we expand the margin, right? Because there, there's here's different ways you can do it. One, you raise prices to your consumers. Consumers don't like that. If they used to pay 20, they don't want to pay 24. They want to pay 18. So that's one way, right? Two, you lower your costs. So you look at it, where can you lower your costs? Where are your largest costs? One is your customer acquisition or your, advertise, your advertising on Amazon, which we'll call that the acquisition. So we'll go in there and go, are you optimized to this? Are you most efficiently attracting people to your website, most efficiently bringing them to your Amazon storefront? Are you doing all of the steps in there? Because we have a lot of best practices about making sure we're bringing outside traffic into Amazon, all, all the different things that you can do to make sure that you're performing the highest you can perform. Then you look internally and we go, is everybody inside the company producing at the level that they want? 
And is the reason because everybody's in the right place or do you not have the right people, right? There's a difference. Sometimes you have the right people, but they're just not in the right place. So we come in and we'll, we'll go, hmm, Sally, she's great. She should be over here working on this, not here. And so- That was kind of the example you had with the CMO and yes. you know, versus like brand building versus content production, right? That's exactly right. Sometimes it's as simple as that. And then sometimes you have to have the hard conversation of, I know Jack's been here for a long time, but we need somebody else that, that this isn't the right role for them. And so we don't take it lightly because that's never a fun decision, but we have to run a company. And so we have to sort of say, what could people do? So that's, that, that's one level. And then, you know, another one is, you know, we always are looking at the other big costs is your, your cost of goods. Is there, are there ways to order more? Like if we bring more capital to the table and, and put, put a large order, a larger guarantee with your manufacturer, yeah. you know, it's not always just switching manufacturers. Like I think that has a lot of risks. So it, it, to me, that's a last resort, like sure, we would switch manufacturers, but it doesn't tend to me. There's a lot of bad outcomes in that and a high risk. Yeah. But quality issues can come up and everything, yeah. every, every sort of timing issue. issues can be a problem. Right. But, but higher, higher MOQs can, can get you lower unit cost a lot of exactly. times. I mean, if you're not doing that, you always want to do that. You always want to put that phone, put it to, cause we're just not shy. We're going to go, Hey, how about if we do this? How about if we do that? How about if we pay you in this currency and it comes direct, it's not in dollars anymore. You get it in whatever we could do to move the needle. And there's lots of things and some, you know, Sometimes they might only move the needle 2%, but I always say, look, if we can get two more pennies on everything we sell a few times, they add up. Especially when you're, when you're dealing with companies doing 10 million or more in revenue. I mean, 2%, you can see it on the bottom line. Yep. You see it. Right and like you said, you do, it, you do that four or five times and all of a sudden, you know, you may have doubled the profitability of the business. That's right. And then we always reinvest. And that's one of our key tenants. It's like when we come into a company, all the cash that's producing the business goes right back into it. And we tell them, I mean, that you know, we're very upfront with them. We're like, look, for the next two years, all we're doing is taking all the cash this company generates, putting it back at the top of the machine to produce more cash because we're going to get paid on how much cash it's producing when we sell it. And so the, the more we can do now, because like if you look at our timeline, we have this whole theory that like the first three months, we have to understand your business into it. That's when we do all the process mapping and, you know, all the accounting, and all the sort of blocking and tackling, the stuff that like, we have a list of 30 things and we haven't seen a company that doesn't need 15 of them, if not all 30, you know? So we just come in, boom, 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 boom. We're banging those. Then we're learning the company. Then at that three months, we go to the board meeting and we go, here's the six month, nine month, 12 month, 15 month, 18 month. These are what we need to hit at each one of these. And if we don't have these executed by the 12 month period, we're not going to have year over year comps when we go to sell. So everything we're doing of value, we prioritize it. We go, look, You've got to do this first because we want year-over-year comps on this. And it's going to take us six months to launch it or to do it or to open that channel or to, to go to the EU or wh whatever it is that we're doing that's so strategic that's going to move the needle. Like people always go, like I say, and, and people may have heard me say this, it's like an entrepreneur should always believe their business is going to triple. Like they should believe that in their heart. Like they should always believe it. Good. When we believe it, we look at it and go, okay, you're going to grow your existing products by 50%. That's one piece of it. But that's only a small piece of it, right? We've got to do that a few more times. Where are you doing it? What big things are going to change this to actually allow you to triple the valuation? And that's what we have to see. That's what we look for. We go, okay, we see it. You're going to do this. You're going to launch in the EU. You're going to move to a 3PL so you don't have to cut back that fourth quarter marketing. You're going to, you know, go wholesale and you're going to launch into two, like, right? Like, okay, good. We've identified three big things 
as well as executing the business that are going to make you get there, then we believe. And then that's where we see success. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but does the South Call then take a board seat on these companies as well? Yeah. So we have a board seat. So one of the five founders, there's two founders of GW Partners and two founders of Scala and then myself from Sellerfy. So one of the five of us will sit on the board. Uh, we all talk about all of our portfolio companies because we all care deeply, not every one of them. But we always put the one who has like the most direct relevant knowledge. And then we always pull in our partners. You know, Chris Shipferlin is one of the partners and like he has an extensive background in Evenflow and CPG. So if we're like going into store, like we, we bring him in because he's done it with, with all of those products. And so we make sure that we get all of his knowledge, his context and all that. Or, you know, if somebody's doing, you know, something that like fits into my wheelhouse, of course, I'm going to jump in and, and like do what I can to, to help it. But yeah, we sit on the board and we have, a, like yeah. I said, our system is we have an ops team. Our ops team meets with the portfolio ops team at least once a week, if not more. If there's a project, maybe it's more, but at least once a week. And then we meet with the board member, meets with the entrepreneur and maybe like the COO, and I mean, depends on the company, once, once a week at least for a strategy to make sure that we're hitting. Because we really sort of like, look, every week we're like, guys, we have 100 weeks to make this work. That's what we have, man. That's two years, 100 weeks. So- if we miss a week, we're down a percent, man. And like, that's not good. So every week we've got goals. We've got, you know, things we want to have accomplished. And if they're not, we go, what's the impediment? How do we remove the impediment? What do we need to do to get it rid of it? How are we solving this? Because we don't want another week to go by. Because <laughs> Lord knows then we're 2% by. Then we're 3%. Like, and let's, let's not get there. Let's get ahead. Let's get this launched because we want to launch by first quarter. And, you know, the way the system works, if we get backed up now, it, it's going to back us up later. And, that's not what we want. So how do we yeah. get off that? What do you think is the most successful outcome you've had? Give me an example of your well, best so case. Our best case, well, so obviously we just launched this year. So so we're still in the growth phase for our companies. But we have a company that's seeing 60% year-over-year growth. I would say that's incredibly successful. Yeah. All of our portfolio companies are doing well. And so like for the top end, I mean, really what we're seeing is, is the removing of constraints on the business, especially one of them we're about to like have, there's like three huge that will just game break the company are being finalized. That we, we came in and we're trying to connect them to new channels that they didn't have before. And if they get in there, it's instantly going to double or triple their revenue just on a single, single line. So like those would be our biggest, our biggest wins. But again, I always stress we working with companies that were growing before us. We do add a lot of good value and I, I think we're incredibly valued, but we're coming into situations with incredibly good entrepreneurs that are in incredibly good companies and that are going up into the right already. All we try to do is steepen the curve, steepen that curve to, to go up more. So it's not like all that growth is, is on our, on our backs. It's we just tried to put hot air into it and, and jet fuel, you know, into that growth and make sure that they didn't trip because we've seen. From my side, I did minority investing. So you talked about like people coming in and investing in minority. So I ran a private equity fund of my own, which is how I did seller's funding was through that vehicle. And minority investing is its own yeah. niche thing because- You got to get your shareholder rights, right? <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, you're still minority. You're minority. Like even if you have rights, the point is you don't get the decision-making power. <laughs> and that's the one thing you have to learn that, that you need to be able to present facts and ideas but it's up to the entrepreneur to, to agree and do them and no shareholder rights give you the right to tell that entrepreneur what to do. 
And so for me, that's the fun part because I love that. I love listening to them. I love learning. I, I learned so much from every one of our entrepreneurs because they're such smart men and women and they, they just are so passionate about what they do. And, and I love it. So that's for me, the best part of my job, which is I learn so much from them and just anytime I can add value, I love it. It makes me happy. And so awesome. I didn't ask you this at the beginning, but are you a mountain climber? Have you climbed Everest? No. Hilariously, my wife wrote a book about mountain climbers, Bolt from the Blue, which is about a lightning bolt that goes through nine uh, blade people on a, on a mountain. And the rangers helicopter in short hauling and pulling and rescuing them. And I went to Jackson Hole to meet all these, these, these rangers. They happen to all be men, but holy cow, were they heroes. I mean, these guys were like the... The coolest of the cool. Like I just was in that room like, wow, these guys are so, so awesome. They're just like, you know, and a ton of them have climbed Everest, as you might expect. I mean, that's what these guys. There's some there's some really, really technical climbing on the Tetons there. Oh, the, the, the grand, they, they actually, they say it's a lot of them say it's harder. Who've done both. I've done neither. So, so. Yeah, so I'm, I've done neither either. But I've been, I've been there and looked at it. And thought, Man, that would be hard to climb. <laughs> Same as you guys. The guy looked up and was like, ooh, that looks tough. And, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, I free climbed that. I'm like, oh, okay. Give me a helicopter any day. I'm out. Uh, but, yeah, they, they say a lot of it is more technical. So, no, tell us it was a brand story thing which is just it's it's trying to connect what we do in the name as, as we went through and you know that was what we came up with we like it i like it no it makes a lot of sense it's the yeah technical climb to the peak man it makes makes a ton of sense uh, <laughs> it's uh very very cool and uh, hey so nick how can our listeners connect with you or south call easiest is www.southcall it's s-o-u-t-h-c-o-l.co so just co and so southcall.co is the easiest way about ton of information. And then you can always email me. And my email could not be easier. It's Nick, N-I-C-K, at southcall, S-O-U-T-H-C-O-L dot C-O. Email me. I answer any anyone I get. I'm, I'm happy to talk to any company. I love, I spend my days talking to entrepreneurs. I love talking to them. You know, we know what we're looking for, so we're very upfront. But I love learning and, and meeting and doing that. So I'm happy to entertain Anyone, I'm happy to answer questions too. We love what we do and we think that there's a tremendous amount of value to be shared. And we just like to partner with people that, that see that making the pie bigger is great for everyone. All right. That was Nick Weeksner, who you can find at southcall.co. That's S O U T H C O L.co. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Deal Closers podcast brought to you by WebsiteClosers.com. If you like the show, be sure to rate us, write a review, press the follow button and share it with your network. And of course, if you're looking for help selling your e-commerce business, be sure to visit us at WebsiteClosers.com. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Isaac Porter. Follow me on LinkedIn and we'll see you next time on the Deal Closers podcast.